Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hey there. Hope you've had a great week. It's been pretty busy here at Strictly VC HQ, what with all of the different news stories competing for our attention. First, of course, there is the continuing fallout from FDX's bankruptcy. Sam Bankman-Fried has been making the rounds and telling everyone that will listen how sorry he is for being so incompetent at managing risk. Look, I screwed up, Bankman-Fried told the New York Times' Andrew Ross Sorkin at the outlet's DealBook Summit. FDX's former founder was a little less sure of himself when he sat down with George Stephanopoulos at ABC, but nevertheless denied misusing customer funds. Is Bankman-Fried adopting the financial equivalent of an insanity defense by insisting that he was incompetent, not reckless and scheming? Perhaps we should ask the ChatGPT, a new chatbot prototype released by OpenAI on Wednesday. It's fair to say that ChatGPT has taken Twitter by storm, with countless Twitter users going on and on about its fluid writing style, its ability to reason, and its many possible applications. The app's programming skills are particularly noteworthy, with one programmer remarking, someone please try convincing me I will have a job in five years. But perhaps it's Google that should really be worried. Although it is still in its infancy, many have remarked that ChatGPT is a threat to Google because it provides detailed answers to users' questions, not just links. The third big story of the week that we try as we might couldn't ignore was, yes, Twitter. First, Elon Musk had to once again suspend Kanye West from the platform for tweeting an image of a swastika. In October, let's not forget, West was suspended for declaring that he wanted to go DEFCON 3 on Jewish people, an apparent misspelling of DEFCON, a Department of Defense acronym for Current National Defense Threat Levels. But a potentially bigger story is Twitter's rapidly diminishing ad revenue, which the New York Times today describes in excruciating detail. According to insiders, Twitter has had to radically cut its advertising projections and is offering sizable discounts to any advertisers courageous enough to advertise on its platform. Phew! A lot to take in, and we have a lot for you in tonight's podcast as well. First, Connie talks to Phil Hazlitt, the co-founder and now chief strategy officer of Equity Zen, a 10-year-old New York-based secondary marketplace. From his unique perch in the startup ecosystem, Hazlitt comments on whether we've seen the bottom of the market yet. Next up is Dina Radenkovic, co-founder and CEO of Gamito, which has an ambitious plan to help women at every stage of their reproductive health. But first, a word from our sponsor. Voban from Carta is currently accepting SPV migrations from Assure if you are caught up in that mess. Launch your next SPV in five minutes on their platform. Voban from Carta is the all-in-one VC super app to launch your first $100,000 angel syndicate or manage your next $1 billion VC fund. Set up your fund, raise capital from your LPs, issue capital calls, and more. All in a few clicks. If you'd like to learn more, please reach out to www.voban.io slash strictlyvc. That's www.voban.io.
Strictlyvc.io slash Strictlyvc. everyone. Earlier this week, we talked with Phil Haslett, the co-founder and now chief strategy officer of EquityZen, a 10-year-old New York-based secondary marketplace that connects accredited investors with privately held company shares that their owners, sometimes founders, sometimes employees or VCs, are looking to sell. It's a tough business to be running right now, competing as it does with the shares of publicly traded companies that are selling at fire sale prices compared with a year ago, and which are far more liquid. Indeed, like a lot of outfits, Equity Zen, which says it has 250,000 investors on its platform and that it has helped move shares of more than 400 different companies over the years, last month conducted a sizable layoff, parting ways with 27% of its then 110-person team. Still, Hassett adamantly believes that the secondary market will only grow bigger over time, once it gets over this very big hump. More now on what he's seeing on pricing, hot and cold sectors, and how far we are from the bottom. So, Phil, I have not talked to anybody about the secondary market since probably June. And unsurprisingly, in June, the market was completely stuck. At least there was tons of demand to sell secondary shares and not a lot of buyers who, of course, were waiting to see their prices were going to land. And I'm just wondering, is that market still static or are we seeing more movement now? I agree. I think markets were pretty stagnant from April on to maybe July or August, combination of factors. But the biggest one being the expectations of sellers and where buyers really wanted to get into names. So have certainly seen an uptick. Mainly, I think what we've seen is reality setting in for selling shareholders on the prices that they would get in the secondary markets, and also more buyers coming to the secondary space to find investments in names they like, mainly because primary raises aren't happening at all. So if you've got a lot of capital to deploy and you want to invest in late stage tech, most companies, if you said, hey, I'd like to lead a primary funding round, what do you think about a 40% discount to your last funding round, or maybe a deal with a bunch of structure? A lot of founders and CEOs are saying, no, I'm all good with that. We've got some cash on hand. We're going to ride this thing out. Don't really want to do that. Mm-hmm. And so what that's led to is a lot of particularly institutional investors crossing into the secondary space with more frequency than we've probably seen in the last 10 years. I keep thinking it's got to be so tough for you and everybody in the space because everything on the public market is also very steeply discounted right now and obviously super liquid. Probably any secondary platform or market participant would tell you that 2021 was a pretty unique era of secondaries. Probably no one's coming close to doing the amount of volume they did in 2021 that they're going to do in 2022, Mm -hmm. mainly for the reasons you mentioned, right? Public markets have deteriorated tremendously for tech companies. And if you're an investor, you might say, well, there's a really liquid solution out there where I can buy companies at five times revenue or three times revenue in the public markets. Why would Mm -hmm. I kind of enter into the private space? And that's probably what we saw mostly in Q2 and Q3. And now finally, what's coming back is... Once you've exhausted those opportunities in the public markets, which are the private company names that you really still have a long-term belief in? Mm. And how can I, as an investor, really deploy capital into those companies? And again, you're getting shut down or getting stiff-armed on providing primary capital to those companies. What are some of the biggest names that you're seeing in terms of volume? I can't share actual names, but I think maybe just some high-level detail on sectors that are probably the most prominent. Up until Q2, we were pretty active in Web3 and crypto companies. That's obviously gone really quiet of late. 
I would say the consistent sector has been in cybersecurity. That's one that stood out and performed well. Still means that it's down relative to 2021 numbers, but probably the the most appetite we see is for cybersecurity names. By far, fintech is retreated relative to 2021. Food tech has retreated. I would say enterprise SaaS companies are still doing well, but just at a much more conservative multiple on revenue than Mm. we'd seen in the past. It never looks good, obviously, when it gets out in the press that shares on the secondary market are trading at a huge discount. So I wonder if founders and management teams and by extension, venture capital backers are trying to limit some of these sales more or less than you've seen in the past. Yeah, it's a great question. I would actually say we've seen a bit of the opposite where you've seen a bit more reception from companies for secondary transactions, which sounds counterintuitive, right? You've got two opposing forces. One is the one you just mentioned, venture capital firms and founders may be hesitant to have an active market that shows that prices have gone down for the value of their shares. Offsetting that is the fact that these companies have employees and early investors that were probably thinking about liquidity events Mm -hmm. by way of IPO in 2022 and 2023. those have been completely shut out right, and taken off the table. And what that's meant is that you've got a lot of shareholders that have cash needs of their own that are independent of the company's performance. that are saying, well, my family and I plan for potential IPO in 2023 and what that would mean for us financially. And if that's not going to happen, I need to think about liquidity for my shares. And so that's actually kind of brought to the forefront a bit more of this idea of, okay, if there's periodic liquidity for our employees and for our early investors that really need it, that might not be a bad thing, particularly for morale and retention of our best employees. Have you seen a bounce back at all? Is it still sort of trending down? What data can you share that would suggest where maybe we are here? Yeah. Current average discounts to the previous funding round, I think we've seen right now are at about 40%, 4-0, which is probably the lowest we've seen it in the past year. Mm-hmm. If you'd asked me in Q1, it was probably closer to 20%. It's name specific as well. So taking a look at some of the deals we have now, some of them are at 80% discounts. Some of them are at 10% mm-hmm. discounts. A lot of it is kind of dependent on what that last round looked like, right? Mm-hmm. If you raised that 100x revenue in 2021 from SoftBank in a really competitively red round, we may be seeing discounts that are wider than 40%. Now compare that to a company that may have raised capital in Q1 or Q2 of 2022 at a more relatable valuation, we might only mm-hmm. see a modest 10 or 20% discount. So I wouldn't say that we've seen a bounce back on valuations. I will say that the acceleration downwards is slowing down, if that makes sense. So we're not seeing it go from 40 to 60% immediately. And so my guess is, as you hover around this 40% discount, if trades start to happen, it increase frequency, particularly from large institutions and known mm-hmm. institutions. I think that may indicate that we're either going to sit at this floor or we're going to start to bounce back. Though a lot of it is just really dependent on performance in the public markets. Phil, also, I'm wondering, how much has Equity Zen raised altogether? We've raised a little under $7 million. Under $7 million? Um, Yeah. Oh, altogether. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. We're a very boring company as far as venture backing goes. We last raised money in February of 2017. So coming up on six years now. And have really just relied on the business model and the profitability of the business to reinvest and grow, which has been nice to be in our own control. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I saw that last month Axios had reported that like so many other companies, you had to lay off some of your employees, 27%, they said, of your 110-person workforce. Tell me a little bit about that decision and what it means for the company. 
Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. It's never fun to, to see some of your best people leave. But we took a look at the market and we looked at the macro lens of where we are and decided that we had to reduce the size of the team a little bit to build out runway for the business. I would say it's probably the hardest thing we've had to do here at Equizen by far, letting go of some really, really good people. But the benefit of being a company that hasn't raised too much outside funding is that that was a decision we made when we wanted to make it, not something that a board told us we had to do by XYZ date. And so we were able to hold off on making that decision as long as possible. So it's not something we just did as a knee-jerk reaction in, say, the start of COVID, where we didn't lay off anyone. We did it when we thought it made the most sense for the business and only at that point, and we exhausted other options. I also just wondered about next steps because Equity Zen is a brand that I've known for years, and I did not realize you'd raised just seven million dollars, which is very impressive to me. But Forge Global, a yep. rival of yours, went public through us back in March, and like so many companies on the public market, it's, it has not performed. Its timing didn't help, but its shares are trading at a dollar and thirty three cents. Its market cap is just two hundred and thirty million dollars, which is less than the two hundred thirty eight million dollars that investors had poured into the company when it was still private. What does that mean for your future? Do you hope to go public? Yeah, it's going to be a boring answer. But Mm -hmm. the the way that we truly think about it is that we started the business almost 10 years ago for Mm -hmm. Equizen. And the goal was basically to bring this asset class to as much of the market as possible. right? And so our mission statement is private markets for the public. And I, I think what we've done in the first 10 years is we've taken this from being an institution only asset class and we've brought it to accredited investors. And we're Mm -hmm. really proud of that. But I still think that we're very much in the early innings. And so we want to be able to operate and continue to bring private markets to the public. And if that means that it's doing it as a public company, that's fine. If that means doing it as a privately held company, that's also fine. If that means doing it uninterrupted as part of a larger financial services business, that's also okay, Mm -hmm. so long as we can continue to work on it. Because I really do think that we're just starting to scratch the surface. Phil, so nice to talk to you. I really appreciate your time. It's been a treat catching up. Let's stay in touch because I want to see where we land in a couple of months. Yeah, yeah, likewise. Thanks so much for the time. Take care. And now our talk this week with Dina Radinkovic, the co-founder of a company called Gamito, which is focused on tech and therapeutics to study and treat diseases of the female reproductive system. Radinkovic, who is a physician with a medical degree from the University College of London, is primarily focused right now on using cell engineering to make IVF cycles shorter. But she has a big company in mind, one that begins working with young women to help them freeze their eggs, then helps them to hopefully turn those eggs into babies later if they so choose to become parents, and ultimately is by their side as they age to, again, using cell engineering, extend the life of their ovaries and delay menopause, after which women face a number of heightened health risks. Her thinking, women are living longer, their ovaries should be working longer too. Investors like her vision. Gamito has so far raised $40 million from investors, including Insight Partners, Future Ventures, Bold Capital Partners, and others. It also helps that Radinkovic's co-founder in Gamito is Martin Varsavsky, a serial entrepreneur who years ago founded Prelude Health, a fast-growing network of fertility clinics in North America that is among more than a handful of clinic providers that are hosting preclinical trials of Gamito's first biologic called Fertilo. We talked with Radinkovic about those trials and much more earlier this week. 
Dr. Dina Radikovic, I'm so happy to be talking to you. We sat down in Lisbon. It was so fun to see you at the Web Summit event where I know you were presenting on stage. And we hadn't talked since earlier this year, and I had wanted to catch up with you then on the progress of your company. And I continue to think what you're working on is so interesting that I wanted to surface this for a broader audience. So thank you, first of all, for making time for me today. Thank you so much for having me. And obviously, thank you for even covering your story when we came out of stealth in January last year. We made a lot of progress since then. We stay true to our mission that we want to redefine female reproductive health by developing therapies that improve lives. But we have certainly spent most of the year working on our product, aiming on solving infertility. So most of the work that we've done over the past year has really been on developing and validating and even entering studies with fertility clinics as part of preclinical development of testing our product to enable shorter, safer, more effective IVF and egg freezing for all women. Right. This is what we were talking about in Lisbon, and I want to understand it a little bit better. So first of all, infertility is an issue that affects 15% of couples worldwide. You have a couple of biologics, as you mentioned. There's one that you're very focused on. Now, this is called Fertilo. And as you were telling me when we sat down, it's different from IVF in that with IVF, women are having to inject themselves with follicle stimulation hormones or take fertility medications orally like Clomid for two to four weeks to stimulate the follicles in their ovaries and mature more eggs than they would in a normal cycle. Now your biologics claim is that patients undergo just two to four days of hormonal stimulation versus that two to four weeks, which you say protects women from the burden and risk of systemic ovarian stimulation. How does that work? We are a cell engineering biotechnology company. We started with a sponsor research agreement, which our church's lab at Harvard Medical School. Our underlying technology allows us to convert stem cells into cells of the reproductive system. And we build it into the organoid model of the reproductive system. And we use it to derive therapeutics, biologics to, that occur for the disease of the reproductive system. So our first product, Fertilo, is a derivative of an engineered ovarian supporting cell line. And it allows us to add fertile to eggs in, in a dish in the embryology lab and aid their maturation to improve the maturation and quality by mimicking a natural process that occurs in the ovary. Normally in our ovaries, we have immature eggs and we have these ovarian supporting cells. And these ovarian supporting cells are important, help egg maturation. So we try to mimic that natural process and we try to give more of that experience in vitro. And by use of our product Fertilo, we can reduce the need for injections and allow more mature eggs. The current process usually involves around two weeks. And we currently are conducting preclinical studies with slightly different protocols, but we have a protocol in which we have only three days of injection. We have a protocol where depending on, again, personalized to the woman, there is a combination of fewer injections, perhaps none, perhaps three or perhaps five that would essentially be given to the woman depending on her need personalized by a physician. And then the eggs would be extracted and then the immature eggs would be treated with our product in a dish left in the incubator. And then afterwards, once mature, they would be either frozen if the purpose was egg freezing, or they could be fertilized if the purpose was IVF. 
can you make eggs more viable with your technology or is the viability of an egg predetermined and you're supporting these cells in a better way than has been possible in the past? Well, we're maturing and providing mature eggs. Mature eggs are essentially viable, good eggs that are more likely to give healthy embryos and healthy babies. So certainly by improving maturation, you also improve the quality of eggs. And we've been doing really extensive analysis, both from imaging and sequencing to show that it's not just the maturity, but it's certainly the quality of these eggs that are performed and improved in the process. And then in terms of opening up the market, which is so, I think, crucial because as you said, it's just such an expensive process as it exists today. There are some companies that offer it as an employee benefit, but relatively few. In the, I know your objective is to someday make your product widely available at a more affordable price point. How do you do that? Well, one could understand that looking at the cost of this cycle and where a lot of the driving cost is, the cost is around the injection medications. A lot of it is around the ultrasounds, the blood tests, right? Women are medicalized throughout this process. Gamete or cell extraction is not the same for men and women. So if you could potentially change this protocol by eliminating injections or reducing them to the bare minimum of injections that the patient needs, you could reduce clinic visits, you could reduce the need for the medications that obviously cost the price, you can make it a lot more convenient, shorter and cheaper. And that is what we hope to do. Our mission is really around access as well as efficacy and convenience. And we think that currently, as we know, only minority of couples that have infertility access this service. And especially given when women have these fertility problems, we want to ensure that if they want to do egg freezing, that they're able to afford it. So by converting something that's a two-week medical process into something that could be done over a weekend Mm -hmm. that requires much fewer medications, that does not require hospital monitoring and blood tests, we can drop the price of this process for sure. What are your preclinical trials telling you in terms of how effective this is? So certainly we've done the experiments even before starting the studies with some engineered samples. We've done the animal studies. And then we've announced a couple of months ago that we started the preclinical studies with clinics across the U.S. So since then, we've recruited over 120 women in our studies And uh, we're seeing that firstly, our product is non-toxic and that secondly, that it it does aid egg maturation. So we are hoping to complete our preclinical data by the end of the year. And then we need to see that this translates into live births. So there's still work to be done and we are not making any judgments yet. We're doing the science slowly, but the data that we're getting so far is promising. And uh, it certainly shows that there is some good science here in terms of what we hope to get, and that is increased egg maturation. And when do the numbers become truly meaningful? Certainly, we want to ensure that we have enough learning to know what is the optimal protocol for every patient. So once we feel comfortable and once the regulatory bodies and specific jurisdictions feel that we have enough data in terms of both efficacy and safety is that we would evaluate the next step. That's the beauty of obviously working in assisted reproduction is that we can get really interesting data in terms of efficacy of our product for 
human because this is process is done in a dish, but this is not a clinical study yet. So it is a preclinical study and the endpoints are, are fairly standard. What we are trying to do is developing these atlases and sequencing and imaging to really understand the underlying biology. A lot of these things were developed, I mean, even IVF before we've had the advent of new technologies like big data and sequencing. So we're hopefully using the first program to really learn as a company and build this platform that we want to be for female reproductive health so that we can use it to develop better products in the future. What do you think it's going to take for women to think about freezing their eggs in this way as something that should be done routinely? I think if you look at egg freezing situation right now, it's only 7% of current IVF cycles in the United States. In many jurisdictions, it's just getting legal for what we call elective use, right? So in Singapore, it was up until last year, illegal to do it unless you have a medical reason. So women had to go abroad to do it. And then they've now allowed access for everyone. So in some places, we're widening the access. But the problem, as I mentioned, is that even in the United States can do it. But what are the barriers? The barriers are really that it's expensive and it's inconvenient. And when women want IVF, they want to have a baby at this given moment. Women, we are brave. We are going to put up with all the injections and the horrible side effects because we really want a baby at that point. But when it comes to egg freezing, it is often a decision on the balance of risk and benefits. So you could imagine a 28-year-old living in New York. She has saved $20,000. She has 10 days of pay time off. And she's thinking whether to use it to go on holiday with her friends or use that same resources to inject herself at home and come bloated and have to go to work and have to explain people why she freezing her eggs. Yeah. Is is it because there's something wrong with her or she's delaying or does she right, doesn't delaying have her children? Exactly. Right. There's a lot of potential judgment. Right. And then you realize that if you break these two barriers, and let's say that we do uh, end up showing that uh, even the no injections protocol works, imagine a world in which you come in, you go for one day extraction. That's it. You can go back to work. You don't need to take your injections that mess up your whole body. And then you can even repeat it two or three times. You get enough eggs and then you have it as a security policy. Sure. And then you have your monthly subscription where your eggs are frozen. And then there are many things that can happen from taking a medicine or an accident or cancer, or even if you don't use the eggs for your first pregnancy, what if you want to have a second or a third child later when you're mm. 38. And we've been living longer by two years every decade. Right. But the age at which we lose our fertility has not really been extended since the introduction of medical records, right? Mm -hmm. So I feel that in the current way how we're living, even that optionality is very important for women. But in order for more of us to be able to do it, we need to make it cheap and convenient. Sure. I hope so too. And obviously if the prices fall, that's more attractive to them. You talked about women living longer, people living longer. And you and I had talked originally earlier this year about a different product that is secondary to Fertilo, which is amino, a biologic for women as they head into menopause, which as you'd said at the time we spoke, again, women are living longer, their ovaries stop working at the same time that they always have, which leads to after menopause, increased risks of numerous conditions from osteoporosis to heart disease, to even potentially Alzheimer's. Are you making any progress on that a biologic? So 
most of our resources right now are really focused on bringing Fertila to the clinic and to the market. We made the first prototype for Amino. And given that we're a small company and that we started getting really promising data, our current team is really focused on infertility at the moment, again, simply because of prioritization. And I think that IVF is really the the best first place to start mm-hmm. women's health. I mean, I could talk for probably way too long about all the things that need to be addressed. Seriously, when you go and look at women's health, th- there's pretty much nothing. A lot of it is just pure hormonal base. As if you take a time machine 20 years backwards from the technologies that are used in oncology, like for cancer, for blood treatments, for other diseases, even neurology, cardiology. So I feel that there are many things to be addressed here. And we certainly Mm -hmm. have this platform technology. The reason why IVF is so good is because it's always done in a dish. So very quickly, we were able to test our product in a dish Mm -hmm. and then move that dish from our lab to the lab in the IVF clinic where it's done. And then certainly with that knowledge and the learning and the validation of our science, we hope to be able to tackle other programs. And the second one is obviously menopause because these two things are very closely interlinked, right? These are all, as we call phenotypes of ovarian aging, if you look at almost a trajectory of ovarian function, we know that ovaries age faster than the rest of a woman's body. And then first we experience infertility and very shortly afterwards, there's this whole concept of perimenopause and menopause and eight out of 10 women experience really horrible side effects during that process that can last around two years, but for many women, even longer. And then we know that that age of menopause even has an association of women's life expectancy, right? So even though the current care is very fragmented, you talk to women around the fertility and then IVF, and they're completely different, very few services around menopause, Mm -hmm. but you could almost think of it actually by providing treatments you could have a more continuous healthcare program that starts with women when they're young, telling them about things like egg freezing, then they come back for IVF if they ever want to access that service. Mm-hmm. And then very shortly afterwards, they get support around perimenopause and menopause. Right. So you really are following women through the trajectory of ovarian aging, which is essentially the right way if you think about biology and not the current service delivery. Sure. And so far you've raised something like $40 million from investors with this vision. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So from Insight Partners, Future Ventures, and a number of others, I assume you're looking for more funding? Well, we're not fundraising at the moment. We have raised from, I think, great investors that recognize that there is an opportunity in the space. I mean, women account for over 80% of healthcare spending. So this is a very big market growing, as I mentioned in the beginning, at a faster pace than most other markets. There are very few things where you can see things double or triple in five or 10 years. I did want to ask just because this market has been so tough on everybody uh, and VCs move in packs, as I'm sure you're aware. Last year, it felt like we saw progress in terms of funding for fertility companies and other women's health-related startups. This year, at least over the last six months or so, I feel like I've seen less. How does it feel to you out in the world? Just talking with investors, which I'm sure you do just as the normal course of running a a startup. Well, I mean, (laughs) it's a difficult question once you have to generalize and extrapolate. What I think we're certainly seeing is that the cost of capital has gone up and therefore there is a prioritization 
of products with the shortest route to, to revenues and the shortest route to market. And this is certainly something that we reflected in our own strategy in terms of focus on the product, which it works and takes the shortest amount of time and the least amount of capital to bring it to the market, right? A lot of research and development, even in companies, is now a luxury. The markets have created focus, have created prioritization. We've always been very small and very lean in terms of workforce, but certainly this has helped us get better in terms of prioritization of the fertility product. I think that we are in a good space because we have a near-term massive revenue opportunity and just by doing infertility, be a massive company, but then we have all of the know-how, the data and the other programs. So we are in this space where there is this moonshot, but you also have a very near-term, very de-risked opportunity. As much as you can be de-risked, obviously, in biotech, as we know, this is an inherently risky market. So I think that we have that good space, but certainly I feel that there is a degree of hesitancy. I feel that it will be more difficult to price rounds because how do you price rounds in this market environment? The past two years have not been real, but then what public comparisons do do you use? And as we know, in women's health, there are really only a few companies to, to compare your yourself yeah. to. So I think especially in this space, finding the comparables, finding the valuations that I see as something that people would, would struggle. But I still hope the numbers are there. I always talk about the theory of evolution as a theory. I try to explain many things. And I hope, or at least as an entrepreneur, I have to be an optimist that these pressures are going to actually help us be a better company because mm-hmm. we will have to be even better and prove with fewer resources, what we can achieve. I'm sure there's an opportunity to build a big women's healthcare brand. There aren't a lot that come to mind. And the fact that you are talking about egg freezing and a subscription to this bank, I'm sure gets VCs excited. I do want to ask, there's so much interest in at-home diagnostics. You are compiling so much data. Do VCs always ask if at any point you plan to create a product that can be used within the home? So in our space right now, the actual extraction of Mm -hmm. eggs has to be done as it is right now in the clinic because Mm -hmm. our ovaries are hidden in the back in our tummies. And for that reason, it is a relatively invasive procedure to take them out. And there are products that are being made that are still in development that could allow something like a wash to potentially extract eggs. These are not yet ready. But perhaps in the future with a couple of other pieces coming together, you could have more of a smaller clinic, completely demedicalized egg freezing process. Hmm. Some of the things will still need to be centralized like embryology labs. But I certainly see an evolution in this space that you will potentially be able to do a test at home, find out the right time to go for the service based on the hormone levels and then come for your extraction So I certainly see it as well as many other areas of medicine, frankly, this is not just fertility and isolation, that a lot of the bits and pieces are now shifted from those in clinics to a home, and then only more specialized services or more specialized procedures Mm -hmm. are done in centralized clinics and labs. And I think that is inherently good because it allows us to to serve more people in a cheaper and uh, more effective way. And I hope to see all of us always improving something on our physical and mental health at home and not doing it once we're sick and in the hospital. Right. Dina, thank you so much. It's really nice to talk to you. I wish you continued success with your preclinical studies. And of course, I would love to talk to you again soon when you have more data. 
so we can see how things are tracking. Absolutely. We are really excited and moving really fast. There is a lot of interest for our studies, which certainly justifies the demand and fuels us to work hard. So I hope that we'll have some exciting news to share in the coming months. Thank you so much for having me again. That's it. Thanks for listening, everybody. And a special thank you to Voban from Carta. Remember to check out their platform at www.voban.io slash strictlybc. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you back here next week.